Travel with me to a dark and isolated farm located deep in the heart of St. Mary's County, Maryland, where the only African-American farmer and his family are being tormented by some thing stalking around their property. Can they survive? Can they protect the farm that is their very livelihood? And can they do it with their sanity intact? Are you in the mood for dark, isolated, rural horror? Are books full of ghastly green goo and reanimated corpses your jam? Then check out Mulch, the eerie inaugural novella from Maniacal Books, available today on Amazon Kindle and mcsbooks.com. Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is it. It is our final episode of Chapter 4. We have done nine episodes in total. Does feel like we have been living with Lois and the Golds for a super long time, and I, I think I think actually we just we have. That's why it feels that way. But uh, yeah, this is our second discussion episode. It's our our final discussion episode for this chapter. After this, we're going to take a little bit of a break before we get to Chapter Five, and. In the meantime, we would love to encourage people to check out some of our other shows where we've been covering some some really awesome stories. We have. We we started reading The Castle of Cursed Destinies by Italo Calvino. We did the first two chapters in that book. Uh, we're going to treat those like short stories if we continue along those. We've got some Borges, uh, which is always a real treat to cover. Uh, our episode on the Aleph was one of my favorite episodes, uh, stories that we've read. And, and we've done the Gospel of Mark, which was also a lot of fun. And we've also been able to cover some Robert Aikman as well. So I hope you'll join us for those episodes over on Elder Sign. That show's a lot of fun. If you're not listening to it, I really recommend that you do. And of course, all of these writers have been influential on Gene Wolfe, which is why we we, we are telling you about them. And uh, we've done some other things that are Gene Wolfe adjacent as well on our other other show, which is ATOS, a speculative fiction book club podcast. Uh, that's my solo show, although I think at this point about half the episodes have me teaming up with somebody else from the network, usually Brandon, <laughs> but also Brent and Valerie as well. And of course, Jay also has been doing this great uh, series on medievalism in speculative fiction with me. But uh, as solo shows over there recently, I have covered some Jack Vance, some Roger Zelazny, some Alfred Bester, all people that I think uh, Gene Wolfe fans also have have read, or or if not, uh, would find some interest, some, some Gene Wolfe-esque interest in checking out. So I hope you will. There's also Hanging Out with the Dream King, which Glenn, you do with Brent. Uh, that's a Neil Gaiman podcast. Right now, you guys are covering the fourth arc or or season of uh, the Sandman series, which is called Season of Mists. This show's been a real treat, and uh, I know you guys are getting a lot of uh, real love for it, which is awesome to see. So I hope fans of Gene Wolfe Literary Podcasts in particular will go over and check out the Sandman, which is such a great piece of fiction, such a great uh, comic series as well. Yes, and we've got some uh, Gene Wolfe adjacent material planned for that show as well. When we're done with Season of Mist, we're actually going to be doing some Chesterton. We're going to be doing uh, uh, another Father Brown mystery story over there, which you and I have done one of them, of course, Brandon. So now I'm bringing Brent into that too. It, it won't be too long before I've gotten everyone on the network to have to read a Father Brown mystery <laughs> story with me. It's my, my evil, sinister plan. But uh, also, uh, it, I don't know, I think at this point, probably over on that show, we're two and a half years 
years away from getting to the volume of The Sandman, for which Gene Wolfe wrote the foreword. So, uh, uh, spoiler, Brandon, I think we're going to rope you into uh, a special episode there to to deal with that. But all of that is getting way ahead of ourselves. But we do hope that uh, while we're on break here, you'll check out some of those shows. But we still have a lot to talk about with Peace. Yeah, yeah, we we sure do, Glenn. There's no question about that. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Gold family. In fact, that's where we're going to start. And then there are some loose threads that I'm sure people who have read the novel are like, when are you going to talk about this? Uh, We're going to talk about it at the very end of the episode and uh, do a poor job probably of covering some stuff that you might be really interested in. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just how we do over here. This episode really requires us, I think, to, to talk about the main central business of the chapter. I mean, the chapter is called Gold. Uh, And at least one of the reasons why that is, is that the Gold family seems really important to Weir at this time of his life. So let's talk about the family. Uh, We're just going to go through the characters here or the members of the family and talk about them one by one uh, with some breaks for other important discussion topics that the family brings out of the novel and of Weir himself. So let's talk first about Aaron Gold or Ron Gold. Uh, This guy is Weir's co-worker as Weir says to Aaron Gold's mother, but I also get the feeling that he's Weir's subordinate in the, uh, I don't know, mechanical engineering department of the orange juice factory. We're told that Aaron Gold is really smooth with the ladies, uh, that he has a real conflict with his father, but is really worried about him. And that conflict is born, uh, both of him wanting to go his own way, forge his own way, but also because he knows his father is a criminal and he doesn't want to get dragged into that. Aaron Gold isn't particularly liked by the management at the Orange Juice Factory. We're told that's because he does not have a college degree and that he likes to play pranks on people. Maybe he also talks too much. Aaron Gold is also connected to Ted Singer. This is a character we haven't really had an occasion to talk about, but We'll have to talk about him at some point, maybe in our final wrap-up episodes. <laughs> uh, but we surmise that uh, in this chapter that Ted Singer uh, was someone who also worked with Den and Aaron at the factory uh, at the same time. At some point, they must have all worked together. So I kind of wonder what Aaron's role as a character is here, even though he's kind of he's fully realized as a character in this story. Like he feels like he's living his life outside of the text. Um, I wonder what he's really doing here in the novel at all. I guess he's certainly a way into the Gold family, but ultimately Aaron feels to me uh, as an incidental character. He's a real piece of uh, fifth business, to use a, a theater term. What what sense did you have of Aaron's role in, in the novel? He is certainly a brilliant bit of plotting, right? I mean, just to think about the plot of chapter four, which, as we said last time, is an independent story in in some way, right? It's a, it's got a, a a fully fledged out plot. It's got a, a beginning, a middle, and an, and an end. It is a self contained, complete story in so many ways. Even as it is calling back to earlier parts of the book, and I think also looking ahead to chapter five. But if you want to have your character get involved in a hoax that then is going to send him on a foolish hunt for buried treasure. How do you get the character to that moment? Well, have it have something to do with a coworker is a great a great way to do that. And this is just a, a brilliant bit of of storytelling of plotting by Wolf that I really really appreciate. But you said something earlier, Brandon, in your description of Ron that 
I, I want a question I want to push back on. I, I wonder about, you said that he knows that his father is a criminal and doesn't want to get wrapped up in that. I wonder if that's true. I wonder if he actually does know that his father is a criminal or not. It's clear that Sherry does. And so I think then we might have an immediate impulse to assume that everyone in the family does, because Sally, the the, the mother in the family, Lewis's wife, also does. I'm actually not sure that Ron does know this. I think that Ron knows this because he asks the question to Weir about one whether he's been in his father's shop and if his father has tried to sell him anything and is concerned about what type of person Stuart Blaine is that his father has sold this book to, uh, you know, the lusty lawyer. And I, I, I also get the sense that their conflict is uh, the result of having had to move around a lot, that Aaron doesn't want to take on the family business, uh, which Lewis talks about, you know, passing this on, this this uh, technique, this the craft onto his son. And there's a kind of irony in the way that uh, Lois and Weir talk about what Aaron's concerns really are, which is like his dad got ripped off, especially once we learn his dad is a forger. That conversation to me plays his irony. That's my defense for my uh, statement there. And uh, I'll let you counter here if you'd like. Right. Well, I, I don't think that he's totally oblivious. To me, this initial foray into this, the inciting incident for the whole chapter, is Ron starting to suspect that maybe his dad is not making money by selling used books in a small town in central Illinois that that perhaps the the mortgage paying money is coming from some other some something something else right because i don't think that he is solely anyway concerned that Stuart Blaine is is someone who would take legal action against his father i think that that is something he's concerned about but i think that his question to to weir here about has my father ever offered to get you a book really is what it seems to be, which is that Ron is trying to figure out what is going on, that he's gotten some sense somehow that something tawdry, something illicit is happening with his father's business. He now wants to figure out what it is, but but ha- doesn't quite know what it is yet. That's that's my feeling about him. Yeah, that that's fair. And, and I think we can say with some certainty that uh, even though Wolf might have liked Dashiell Hammett, there's not a Sam Spade in sight in this uh, in no. this novel. No one's a real detective here. Well, Sherry, Sherry might be. Sherry's probably the most hard boiled character in this book. Actually, that is certainly true. And we're and we're gonna we're gonna talk about her next. Yeah, Sherry is a character who I really love. In the few pages we get of her. Wolf is able to capture just this super energetic, misguided teenage girl energy. And and she's full of these conflicting, uh, I guess, stances uh, about life, about what her duties should lead her to. Uh, you know, she loves her father clearly and wants to protect him from his own mistakes. And we can maybe think about what this says about Lewis as a father when we talk about him. But we know when we're thinking about Sherry that her love for him is a real motivator for her character. You know, for instance, she imitates his language. This is just like proof of her admiration for her father. 
she tells this immigrant joke to Weir while they're in the car together when, when he's taking her back home. And, you know, she tells this joke in the context of telling Weir how impressed she is with her father's achievements, that he really did in some way achieve the American dream. And it feels to me as though she learned this joke from her father. And I believe that's because we have her very shortly after telling this joke, repeat a phrase like word for word that we saw Lewis use earlier in the in the chapter. And that's this phrase, world turned upside down. On page 258 of the edition we're reading, uh, Lewis says that he turned the world upside down to get uh, the cult to ghoul. And then uh, 10 pages later, Sherry uses the phrase world turned upside down uh, to describe how she will use her magic ring, a terrible euphemism, to get out of being a housewife, but really more to get anything she wishes for. Like she wished that Weir wouldn't go to the police with her father. So she slept with Weir and now he's not. The world turned upside down. Uh, So the phrase here is also associated with magic and wishes and As readers, we know that this is absolutely going to be a a monkey's paw type of thing. Uh, But yeah, I think all of that is really meant to show us her love and admiration for her father, though she's going about getting what she wants in entirely the wrong way. We also know that Weir at least feels some kind of deep connection to Sherry. She is in the waiting room at the beginning of the book. They have sex, and this really gives me um, some Lolita and Nabaka vibes, not just for the obvious reasons uh, thematically, but also that Weir, like Humbert Humbert, goes to real lengths as the author of this piece to communicate to us as his audience or to his reader, whoever he imagines that to be, that actually Sherry is super into sex and she's the one who wants to use it to get her way. But what Weir totally fails to realize here and communicate to us as an audience is that as an adult with a supposedly developed moral character, it's his job to, at the very least, not have sex with a minor. Uh, And then also this connection that Weir feels to her is really emphasized again in chapter one, when Weir tells the doctor or communicates to the reader that his stroke uh, happened a day after hearing about her death. So I just kind of made an argument for the connection between Weir and Sherry. But I guess what I want to ask is, do you think it's present here? Do you think Weir doesn't realize the strength of the connection that he has to Sherry? And do you think Sherry has the strong connection to Weir in return? Right. Something that we speculated about in in the recap episodes is maybe Sherry becomes pregnant from this sexual encounter and has Weir's child. And uh, Weir is estranged from all of that. He's kept on the outskirts of all of that or something. I, I think that that's unlikely, but we were speculating about that. And maybe some scenarios that are not quite as uh, severe as that as well that would continue their connection in some way. Because it does seem like, although Wolf here in the writing of the book does not ever ascribe a a causal relationship to the two things. It's merely described as correlative. It's temporal. It's a temporal marker. That's it. It is hard not to see it as causal in some way. I think Wolf wants us to be thinking 
at least wondering if it's causal. And so if that's true, I think we want then to imagine that there must be something more to their relationship than simply this one encounter that we get described here in chapter four. And maybe there is, but the thing is that everything that we know about Weir is that he is someone who lives in his memories, that he overly sentimentalizes everything, but especially overly sentimentalizes his relationships with women, that he clearly, in every case that we have seen, to include Sherry, he thinks that the relationships are deeper, more meaningful than the women think that they are. This is true of Olivia. It's true of Margaret. It's true of Lois. And I think it's true of Sherry here as well. So I I think that it's easy for me to envision a scenario in which this is it. This is their whole relationship. They never have anything to do with each other again. But nonetheless, Weir spends the next 15 years thinking about her, as he's also probably thinking about Lois and Margaret and Olivia, and, and possibly other women that we don't know about yet in these same terms, such that when she dies, he actually takes that very hard. Uh, I, I, I would actually believe that Weir is that type of character. I, I don't need for them to have an actual uh, bigger relationship than we see here. Yeah, I think it's very clearly the case that Sherry is pregnant in chapter one when she's going to see the doctor. That's the reason why she's there. Um, We may have reason to worry that it's his child. Uh, there's no evidence really that it is, and there may never be. Uh, she might not ever tell him that it's his like she's we know she's sleeping with multiple people at this point so that might be hard to suss out but i think you're right to point out that weir is exactly the type of character that would imagine a rich fantasy about him having an estranged child with a minor he slept with and choosing to protect his own self and reputation even if it means estrangement and isolation from what would be his family because that's what he knows and so him having that fantasy whether or not it's true whether or not it is his kid the fantasy is strong enough to have him respond to to sherry's death in this way uh and and we can talk about what's true or not when we get to all we're doing is saying we're going to talk about this stuff when we get to our final wrap up episodes, <laughs> whether or not that's the case is really also a question of truth at this point, too, because well, we haven't I, planned it. <laughs> I think when we get to the wrap up episodes, we're still going to be saying we'll do some other episode in the future where we really, really <laughs> dig in on these questions. <laughs> exactly. Though I think there are some core mysteries that we'll have to address. And, and this is one of them. Let's move on to uh, Shelly Gold here, who is Sherry's mom. Uh, Shelly. We learn a little bit about her, okay? So she believes she's psychic. Uh, this is something that Lewis tells Weir. Uh, he says, Shelly's a mystic. She likes to think herself psychic, and I believe sometimes she is. Uh, and she also clearly, even before then, when Weir is interacting with her, wants to give off this sense that she's like into uh, woo-woo magic stuff. Um, and I think that's really important here because that's supposed to make us feel... I think some type of anxiety on Weir's part that do these people know I just slept with their daughter. Uh, Other things to know about Shelly, she admires her husband's intelligence a lot. She is strongly identified as being bird-like. That's important maybe for reasons we'll get to in a little bit. 
And she also really identifies as Jewish and particularly uh, Jewish or Judaism as a type of uh, nationality, as a people group. And that comes out when she communicates these thoughts about how Jewish people could have done what the Romani did. You know, they provided Europe with their religion. They have this rich tradition in magic and prophecy. And actually, this just makes me realize here that at this point, what we need to talk about with the golds before moving on any further is how Weir and Wolf by proxy or Wolf and Weir by proxy, depending on how you want to think, (laughs) who's the character of whose story here, how these people are handling the fact that the Golds are a Jewish family. And what Weir is trying to say about this, or Wolf, especially given the time frame of chapter four, which, you know, is for all intents and purposes taking place very shortly after World War II. We get here in the text these phrases about how the family is supposed to be Jewish or whether or not they look Jewish. And there are many occasions where the Jewishness of the Golds is therefore remarked upon. In chapter one, Weir describes Sherry's face as being pretty and also being Jewish. But then goes on to say that Jewish faces are not supposed to be pretty. Uh, There's also quite a bit here in chapter four about how the Golds are supposed to be Jewish. But then Cherry says that her family's Jewishness amounts to not eating pork at breakfast or any other meal. And again, Sherry is concerned. A lot of this really comes through Sherry. Sherry is concerned about her Jewishness being washed away. She wonders if she looks Jewish. She thinks she looks Slavic. Uh, Weir just says she looks American to her. Weir thinks of Louis Gold as being more German than Jewish. Maybe that's a really uh, coded. I don't quite know what to uncode about that, but it feels coded to me in 1954 to say something like that. Something about passing, maybe. Uh, Weir never thinks of Aaron as particularly Jewish. And as we mentioned, Shelley Gold, Sherry's mother, brings up this issue again in a really strange way, comparing the Jewish people to the Romani, who were both um, killed by uh, the Nazi party in, during World War II. So I guess I, I don't really know exactly the right way in to examine what's going on here. Um, but the first question I want to ask is looking at this with a view toward uh, how Wolf is looking at identity within the text itself. And then maybe we can ask a bigger question. So maybe this is really the wrong question to ask and, and ignorant in some way. But I wonder, Glenn, uh, just on the textual level, how Jewishness and this Jewish family is being treated in the text differently than the way that the Irish people or the American Indians as people or uh, the way the concept of being Chinese is all these peoples who are being singled out, are they all being treated is the Jewish family being treated any differently than these other peoples in the memoir? Like, how is Weir dealing with these concerns about maybe American identity washing away other ethnic or national identities? As we talked about in the previous episode, one of the things that Wolf is really interested in in peace is exploring 
Americana or what it means to be an American. And there are a number of ways in which he's doing this, but one of them is by focusing on the immigrant experience. And in fact, one of the lines that we get at at, at the very opening of chapter four is that the, the golds are not native to Cashinsville, but it's seldom remembered that, uh, Hey, nobody is. And that seems like that's something actually of a mission statement in the way that Wolf is exploring the history of Cashinsville as a kind of micro history for the, the history of America or a microcosm for the history of America, particularly through the lens of immigration. And so I think that's why chapter one is the gives us the biggest focus on Native Americans. We get some of that then still in chapter two, but that's been dissipating. And then chapter two, though, is actually where we get most of the Irishness, most of the stuff about Kate Boyne and her descendants and her stories. We get that in chapter two, though we did also have some of it in chapter one. It returns here in a in an interesting way, in a way that's actually then wrapped up in the the golds. And so, you know, Wolf, I think, is really very interested in what it means to move to America, to move around in America, to be American, to become American. He's interested in cultural assimilation. He's interested in America as a a melting pot. So, you know, we don't get apples to apples here. We don't get all of these different identities treated the same way in the narrative. We don't get a Native American family. Uh, We don't get an Irish family either, at least not at a point when Irishness meant outsiderness in some way or newness in some way. But nonetheless, he is exploring, I think, all of these identities in some similar ways, if, if not treating them the same in terms of narrative structure. Some other things that I can point to here, just where Wolf is interested in the idea of uh, America as a kind of melting pot, is this country club business back in chapter one, where he envisions a world with even more human physiological diversity than we actually have, and then also cultural diversity as well. I mean, really doing this in like fantasy writer terms, right. sort of secondary world <laughs> terms. But then, yeah, we also get Sherry lamenting here the cultural assimilation of Jews, even in, in Europe, and then also being, I don't know if critical is quite right so much as just being a snide teenager, but I'll say being critical of her father's rather banal attempts to retain some bit of Jewishness, even as they are simply assimilating into standard Americanness here in Cashinsville. It seems to me as though Wolf is really singling out uh, Jewishness here as having or carrying the weight of expectations of identity that these other identity categories do not have in uh, in the novel so far, and that really stands out to me in the in the way that he's handling. Uh, Judaism or the Jewishness of this family is this kind of uh, sense where this family knows that because they're supposed to be Jewish, they are also carrying the weight of expectations that people have of them through stereotyping or through uh, popular culture, you know, the way this information is disseminated through popular culture that is also informing what they're supposed to believe about themselves. And this is an example of I think of what I've pointed out on, on different shows before uh, that W.E.B. Du Bois calls double consciousness. And I, and I think that it's uh, interesting, which is a, a weak phrase, but I don't really know what else to say here, that Wolf is 
singling out Jewishness as carrying this type of double consciousness in a way that these other identity groups kind of don't. Right. And I think that something that stands out here, well, maybe it's many things that stand out here, but but things that I want to make clear about the way that Wolf is writing about Jewishness here in peace is that although he has been talking about Native Americans, has been talking about Irishness, has also been been talking about the the family history of the Blaines and the Weirs, all as 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 newcomers there, that it's not until this chapter really that we get a lot of discussion about bodies, uh, about physiology, and I think that that makes us uncomfortable as as readers, where we've got many characters, multiple characters, talking about whether or not people look Jewish and what that can tell us about whether or not they really are. Jewish. That's something that makes me uncomfortable as a reader, for sure. And I think probably most readers now, contemporary readers now. But something that I think that we should say along with that is that there is a very large group of Americans that Wolf is not really addressing in this story. And of course, that's Black Americans, the descendants of African slaves. They just don't really appear in, in this story, there have been, I think, a few incidental characters who have either been described as, as being Black or who we might assume or th- at least consider as being Black, but it's not an identity. It's not a part of America that Wolf is really confronting here. And I think that makes the way that he's exploring Americanness in this book feel incomplete. That's absolutely right. And when you really think about the categories that Weir is looking at, uh, in terms of immigration, he's looking at peoples who we can say or make an argument for on one level or another chose to emigrate to America. That's even the case with the way he's handling Aunt Olivia's um, fetishization of chinoiserie and Chinese culture, where there's even some degree to which the uh, Chinese wave of immigration is present in this novel, um, but it's present through its kind of absence and the American use of uh, Chinese artifacts, where the Black experience uh, and the Black culture here is just not present. And so that maybe could cause us to make an argument or get us thinking about the categories of immigration that we're is dealing with, even though it makes it, it does make the way that Wolf is engaging with Americana feel deeply uh, incomplete, as you said. But I mean, there's one more question to ask about uh, Jewishness here and the way it's present in the text, which is this chapter could be said at any time. Weir could have, Wolf could have changed the timeline a little bit if he wanted to. Uh, but this is coming up a decade after the end of World War II in the text. And I just wonder if you had a feeling about what you think Wolf is commenting on by giving us this time as a setting to comment on Jewishness so near the end of World War II, after uh, you know the Holocaust and liberation of the Jews from concentration camps, and then uh, you know the founding of the state of Israel, and then also an, an, a, a wave of immigration to America. Right, because it's it's not just the war that is the backdrop here, right? It's the entirety of high modern anti-Semitism that culminates in the Holocaust, and. I, I find this really interesting, what Wolf is doing here. I mean, Sherry thinks that it's silly that her father doesn't eat pork when he doesn't do anything else that 
she would consider to be Jewish. But Sherry, of course, right, she has had the comfort of growing up in the northern part of the United States when Nazis were clearly bad guys. But her father, on the other hand, has had to live in a world where broadcasting your Jewishness could get you persecuted, uh, even to the point of being killed, right? Sherry doesn't think about this at all, and I think maybe even can't even imagine a world like this. And I, I think that Wolf has this in mind because it does feel like the Gold family, one of the things that Wolf is doing with the Gold family is looking at parents and, and children, the relationship between parents and children, especially in the context of, of immigration, where these teenagers, or I guess in Ron's case, a, a young 20-something, just can't really relate to their parents who grew up in another country, uh, and in fact, in this case, two other countries, but also just looking at the the march of time about how much the world is changing from generation to generation in the second half of the 20th century. And Sherry, and maybe Ron too, just cannot imagine the world that their parents grew up in. I think that the time would seem more alien to them, actually, than the place would. And I think Wolf does a great job of showing this to us very subtly here. It's really amazing. Even the way that Lois uses the term Bobby Soxer really specifies a time and place, the 1940s, 1930s America, where Lewis Gold might have been really concerned about his identity, but Sherry Gold is being thought of in this young, bright American teenager sort of way. And it gives us this contrast of identity in a way that never Wolf that never brings up what's happening in Europe to the Jews or to the Romani people, it turns out as well. And I think that's another great way of just using language to highlight the way in which even people in the town of Cashinsville aren't thinking about Jewish identity the same way that the Jewish people had to in the 30s and 40s. Well, let's continue along thinking about the Gold family here and really the part of the Gold family, and that's Lewis Gold. And we are going to do that, but before we do, I need to <laughs> I need to squeeze something in uh, that I promised we'd talk about, which is something I'm calling senses of Louis. The word sense has been uh, on my mind a lot for reasons I can't identify or understand for the past two weeks while I've been working on this outline, <laughs> uh, but you're going to have to deal with that as an audience. So uh, Wolf here is really playing with Louis Gold as just the name but he's also bringing it up in all these other contexts in the chapter. Uh, in our recap episodes, I pointed out Louis Couture, St. Louis, Lois's gold. And I mean, Wolf, I think, might really dig Louis Couture's style, you know, if the cover of the long sung omnibuses are to be relied upon in that way. Uh, and, you know, and as I pointed out, St. Louis is the only sainted king of France and is known as the Sun King. Lois isn't introduced to us. First is a character associated with the treasure hunt for gold coins, as it turns out. And yet, as I read this chapter, I did not feel the pressure of the symbolic weight of any of this when I encountered these things. It felt to me as though all of this stuff was just mixed in here as a matter of contingency or con coincidence, like all these things that whose names are similar all just happened to be the case for Weir at this 
time. So I don't know, Glenn, are these just puns? What's going on here? Well, the whole catalyst for Lois entering Weir's life is this writer who really loved alliteration, right? So it's it's you know something of a joke, I think, in that sense, where Wolf has maybe kind of written something at least a little bit like what Amanda Ross used to write. And so, yeah, I don't know that there's anything deeper here than just the fact also that Wolf really likes puns and, and wordplay and that this sort of thing amuses him. If, if there is a, uh, a, a Louis code here or, or something like that, I have not cracked it yet. Yeah, I, I haven't either. I mean, one thing I can think uh, as I'm doing some research for our final wrap-up episodes, that's a drinking game now for this episode, uh, <laughs> is that L- Lewis Gold mentions Young and the collective unconscious and the way that that allows him to justify his forging of the past because everything in the present is already part of this great archetypal past and he can just tap into that and we're all connected in these weird ways. And one thing that could be happening here is that uh, Weir's unconscious mind is aware of all of these things pointing to the importance of Louis and gold in his life, like highlighting on this archetypal or mythic level, but he can't recognize them because they're also just these mundane facts of reality. And so they're categorized wrongly in his head, uh, but they're speaking to some form of the Jungian unconsciousness and what he should be paying attention to. Uh, I don't know if that's true or if that's ever worked for any writer who's attempted to pull off something <laughs> like that. Uh, but that's my argument for what's going on here. So <laughs> let's move on and talk about <laughs> Louis Gold proper. Here's the first thing I want to point out about Louis. You know, he's put into conversation explicitly in the text with what is emerging to be a theme about greatness or the great men of history, or uh, because I've been reading Chinese philosophy, I will say the superior person uh, that Weir has been putting forth subtly throughout this novel, this argument about greatness and failure that seems to really characterize in an unspoken way a lot of what is on Weir's mind in this novel. So what I'm going to do is uh, read these two passages. One is about Louis uh, Lewis, as is spoken by his wife and Weir Silent, thoughts about Shelley's comments. And then we'll uh, look at some other thoughts from earlier in the novel that were called to my mind uh, as I was reading the book. So the first thing I'm going to read is on page 271 of the Orb 2012 edition. Uh, here's what Shelley says uh, People don't understand Lou. He's a great man but he won't be recognized until he's been dead a hundred years. And then Weir says, I wanted to say that I was beginning to think that was true of all of us, that our lives couldn't be viewed with detachment until they were half forgotten, like paintings, which can be seen objectively only when the artists are long dead. But I did not. All right. And then the other passage can be found on page 42 of the Orb 2012 edition. Here's what Weir thinks as he's thinking about his uh, mother's death. It is too late for it now, but it sometimes seems to me that we ought to have kept records by the new generations of our remoteness from events of high significance. 
when the last man to have seen some occurrence or personality of importance died, and then when the last person who knew him died, and so on. But first, we would have the first man describe this event, this thing that he had seen. And when each of them was gone, we would read the description publicly to see if it still meant anything to us. And if it did not, the series, the chain of linked lives would be in an end. Uh, so that's the end of that passage there. These were connected to me, I guess, in a pretty weird way, especially when we think about the way that Louis thinks about the importance of his own work, how it's going to live on forever, and how he shapes the present understanding of the past. So the question I have to ask for you, Glenn, is by these standards, by these strange arguments, does what Louis is doing, does who Louis is or Lou or Louis or whatever, does this make him a great man of history by weird standards, by these strange arguments that are popping up throughout the novel? There's another place in this chapter where a character tells us something about what history is that is a callback to another section that we've had in the book. And that is that Lois talks about history as being a collection of biographies or biography being the only true history, which is a callback to the same thing uh, when Stuart Blaine said it back in chapter two. And this idea of what is history and what are our lives and are we going to be remembered when we die seems to be a central concern, maybe even a central anxiety, actually, of this book. And I think that Lewis Gold is probably not a great man of history uh, by Weir's standards or in, in light of thinking about history as really just a collection of biographies. And the reason is that although I think that Lewis Gold is probably a creative genius, uh, certainly a, a uh, prolific writer and to be admired, at least in that sense, if perhaps no other sense, nonetheless, he's doing it all anonymously. And I think that Weir's idea of, of history is wrapped up in the memory of individuals, keeping alive the memory of individuals or of great events. And Lewis Gold is trying hard to not, not even not be remembered. He's actually trying really hard to not be noticed now. And so, yeah, I don't think he's going to qualify as a great man of history by Weir's standards, uh, no matter no matter what his wife thinks. I also don't think he'd be remembered as a great man or even be thought of one. I mean, except by his family. And his family's a mess. And uh, I don't think even he should be thought of as a great man by his family. I don't think he's the world's greatest father. I think he's he feels loved by his family and he's clearly admired by his family. But the things that his children are driven to do or driven out of the house because of his activities, make Louis or Louis not great objectively. And I think that that contrast is here, the good and the bad, the brilliance of him and the cost of that brilliance. I think that is also a big part of this novel. I do think uh, that Louis is as close to a great man as Weir will ever meet. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think there's an argument made for his greatness or superiorness to use a, a, like a Confucian term or a, a, a Taoist, a Taoist term that he, he, his whole business is rooted in deceit. And so there's nothing that anybody would judge him on as great other than being a kind of genius that could be rooted in, in, in the kind of 
Emersonian sense of genius, where whatever your guiding spirit is, do that to the best. And so there's an American sense of greatness here, uh, I think, that that's rooted in certain American philosophies, um, but not in, in many others. And so, yeah, I think that we can't really encounter Lewis as a great man, even though he's shown to us to be loved and admired by his family. Uh, he he does things that lead to harm of others. But Weir's argument is to shrug his shoulders and say, we all do stuff that harms other people. So you're in the clear by me. There are some parallels that I want to explore, though, before we leave this this question behind entirely. Because I think that Lewis Gold is someone who we should be thinking about in juxtaposition with Kate Boyne here, and that Kate Boyne and Lewis Gold are the two biggest storytellers who actually show up on on page in some way, or whose work shows up on the page here, right? And that Wolf is really interested in thinking about stories surviving uh, continuing to be transmitted through time, even as their creators are are forgotten, and even even when their creators certainly were not great people of of history in the way that you know people mean mean that right that none of them none none of them neither of these in this case uh, are Napoleon right as uh, you know the great person of history for example, but nonetheless Kate's stories we have seen survive and it's very clear that. Lou Gold's stories are going to survive as as well. I mean, he's he's getting books shelved in Ivy League libraries where they're going to be <laughs> not just used by you know people who check out books to raise them for their own amusement, but are going to end up being used by scholars who are doing research on on something. And that is a pretty phenomenal, uh, if a totally anonymous, contribution to culture, right? And, and not even just anonymous, of course, totally forged as, as well, right? But a, a great contribution nonetheless. And I think that that's an interesting parallel. Uh, another parallel that we might see, though, as well, is to think of Lou Gold as uh, a creator, a, a creative genius who founds a successful business that is providing for his family that is rooted in his creative genius. And there's a parallel there with Julia Smart, as as well, right? So Julia Smart, also a, a creative person. I think Julia Smart is someone who's going to qualify as a great person of history by the standards of, of Weir in this book. But then the last person that I'd want to juxtapose with Lou Gold as well is Stuart Blaine, because both of these characters are people who want to be in the business of stories in some way. Uh, Stuart Blaine told us back in chapter two that he always wanted to be an English professor, but you know he had to go run this bank and he's not even very good at it and makes a big joke out of that. That's what he does in chapter two. In this chapter, of course, right, Stuart Blaine tells us what a predator he was during the Great Depression, and in fact, what an excellent predator he was during the Great Depression and has continued to be, and has more or less had his soul burned out of him by by running the bank, actually, right? I don't know that there's another way to, to think about that. And now is just hollowly engaged in the pursuit of books as a material object and a, a sign of, of wealth as a kind of luxury good, and not even interested in the content of them in any way. But we can compare him to Lou Gold, who has 
also not been able to make a living doing something with books or doing something with literature, doing something with stories. He's been a furrier, we're told, back in London, uh, that uh, he also then came to Cashinsville with his family because he had taken a job doing some kind of machine work at the factory. But he now actually has, in, in some part at least, realized his dream of working as a writer. He's gone about it in a weird way. Uh, you know, he's not sold a a novel, a, you know, best-selling novel to a you know, big publisher in New York or London or something like that. But nonetheless, he actually is living, I think, the kind of life that he would like to be living. Whereas Stuart Blaine, who had everything handed to him in his life and, and could have done whatever he wanted, has somehow been imprisoned by his own money, whereas Lou Gold has actually been empowered and in some ways set free, actually, by necessity, necessity as the mother of invention. Part of what this novel is about is business, right? I mean, (laughs) Weir could have been anyone or done anything, but he's a mechanical engineer. He's this becomes the CEO of this big company. uh, And we have all these other business owners that are a part of uh, Weir's life that he encounters growing up. And certainly something that this novel is about is whether or not the business ethics of America are leading to anyone's good or are they inherently evil. Is the production of these commodities good for anyone? And that I think that's a real core question of the novel of Wolf's intention as a writer to explore. And uh, we'll see if he gets into that more of that as the final chapter continues. But let's let's talk about the bookshop now and Lewis's projects. Uh, we're going to look at this in, in two phases here. There's two things that Lewis seems to really relish writing. Lewis has written uh, several local histories, two that we know of. And then he's also written these occult books. Uh, the local histories include, of course, uh, Kate Boyne or Kate Doherty's diary. Uh, we also get mention of the Murchison's travels in Asia. Uh, the Murchison is the maiden name of Emma Lorne. And so this is ostensibly about her family and would give us the uh, history of the Chinese egg. For Kate Boyne's diary, Glenn, I wondered stylistically, and then this could be a really quick question, why we don't get a citation from this passage from the diary, but rather something more like a, a narration from the third person omniscient narrator. Yeah, that was such a strange choice. We do actually get this again at the end with the Necronomicon as well. So there's parallels in this chapter. Well, not parallels in this chapter. It just occurs twice in this chapter. So they're not totally isolated incidents, but they are strange choices. If I were writing this, I would have given actual citations and uh, or quotations and and. Uh, that's, I think, as a historian, or at least a trained historian anyway, if not an actual working historian, that's what I want to see. I want to see excerpts from the actual texts here. But Wolf, I think all throughout this book, right, has been giving us new versions of stories in the voice of Weir, or sometimes even, I think, just in Wolf's own voice as well, where it's a kind of an exercise in retelling these stories. And that seems to be something of a project of the novel that I think will stand out more to us when we are getting ready to do the wrap-up episodes and we give ourselves uh, a month to read the whole book again, <laughs> maybe two more times, like much more quickly than we've, than we've read it now. 
Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, this is a big question, right? Like it's it's very strange why certain passages are cited from texts and others are narrated. Uh, that's a weird, I guess, like it is a style question that could lead to some revelation about the book. But I think it's just kind of a fun choice. <laughs> that Maybe Wolf just was tossing a uh, coin and saying, well, this one's going to be narrated. This one's getting a citation. <laughs> uh, but apart from these two local histories, which we know are forged, there's also the repetition in this chapter on uh, a number of occasions uh, that tells us that the Indian treaty that founded Cashinsville is a forgery. And so now we have these three big instances of a forged local history that people are using to do history, the work of a historian or a genealogist. And this really reminded me of the scene earlier in the novel where Weir, as a boy, misunderstands the meaning of the Civil War monument that was put up in the park in town. That was another instance of history being creatively or designed to be creatively remembered uh, War is glory, something like that from the past. The people we remember uh, died in war. And the way we as Americans valorize dead soldiers, uh, we talked a lot about that back then. But I wonder, Glenn, if you had a sense of why Wolf was really getting us to think about the history of Cashinsville as being forged. Well, it's not in, entirely forged. That's one, one, one thing that I'll say, right, is that we are seeing forgers at at work here but there is real stuff happening right i do believe that lois has actual genealogical records right. weir himself you know, has a real good sense actually of the the history of of cashinsville and the surrounding area and in fact this is another place where we could juxtapose a character with lewis gold and that's weir himself because i think that weir is probably the only person in the world who could have known that Lewis Gold forged that diary, Kate Boyne's diary, at least on the evidence of the text, as opposed to on the material evidence or something something like that, the actual uh, type of work that paleographers and uh, manuscript scholars do. There's our experts who could have done that as well. But Weary, I think, is the only person who could read the text and say, something isn't right here. And so that's an interesting parallel as well, that the, these two characters are really, really steeped actually in the local history in ways that everyone else around them is not. Of course, one of them, the skin of you know, one of the founders, or the founding families of the town, and the other one, a total newcomer. Uh, newcomer late in his own life, in fact, uh, is an interesting parallel. It makes me wonder why... Weir, who knew after reading the diary one time, and we as readers would know too, because early in chapter one, Weir tells us about Hannah, how she never left Cashinsville, um, and even again reinforces the sense of history as something that is lost when the last person remembers it. Hannah thinks about Sugar Creek and her farm and all of this stuff, and how if she went back, the creek would flow again because her memories are the things that are keeping uh, the land alive in some sense sense. Uh, but it makes me wonder why Weir didn't just like tell Lois <laughs> that it's a clear <laughs> forgery and instead like she's got to be run out of town because she pulled a gun on him. You know, like it's very strange to me, this whole series of events that are still mysterious and that result in something terrible happening, some schism between these two people uh, when it could have been easily avoided by Weir just being like, I know this is fake because I knew 
I know this information. Well, uh, to be fair, I don't think that we're felt that way in at the moment, right? That he he's rethinking uh, the the text in light of the fact that they they don't find any gold, but that he's already at that point really really skeptical of the veracity of even just the the geography in the book, right? And that he does tell Lois about, right? So, but Lois is insistent on on giving it a shot, doing their best to kind of pinpoint the the location here, and. Then when nothing good comes of this, I think that this is the sort of musing that that Weir is doing uh, in the the weeks in between the the night in question and then the actual confrontation with with gold. But I do also think actually that that's another interesting feature of Weir is that Weir also is probably the only person who actually could have helped Lois find any place to to dig. And I think that Gold himself probably. You know, his hoax was not to get people out actually looking for gold. He just was writing an, a story that was probably fun for him to write and then trying to make a mortgage payment off the sale of this book to the library. That's what his interest in this was. <laughs> right. And I think he's as surprised as anybody else that someone actually went out with, you know, a pick and a shovel and went looking for, for gold. And and then on top of that, there's a gun involved and someone run out of town because of it or also possibly murdered or something. I mean, I don't think that that's what Gold intended. And, you know, I think that the the library is good business for, for Lou Gold. He even says that he'll need to figure out who replaces Lois so he can send the, the catalog to that person, you know, his catalog of forged local history material. And presumably Gold is also selling to other libraries in the region as well. And this is a, it's a good business he's got going. Well, we know he's selling to you know, Ivy League libraries is too. And that's, that's because of the way he talks about the occult books that he's writing. And, you know, because of the way that this novel is in part constructed out of these stories within stories within the memoir, you know, we hope that these uh, point to the fact that these stories within stories have some relevance to Weir's life. And that if we can decode that uh, as readers, we'll see some kind of deeper meaning of what's going on or the story behind the story. And, you know, this is easy to figure out at least uh, when the text Weir is reading is Andrew Lang's Green Fairy book. Um, But in this chapter, we see books with two lengthy citations that uh, maybe are difficult to decode. These are books that Weir reads, these occult books in Gold's shop. And we know they're forgeries. And we talked about like what these books are in our recap episodes, but we're going to talk about them again here. So the, the two that we're going to focus on at this point is um, Moreister's Marvels of Science and the Necronomicon. So I, I'm going to talk about the Marvels of Science book. And what really jumps out to me about this book is how it can function as a cosmological legend for the text. What one thing uh, you know we can track is how people are animalistic or described as animalistic, and we see that in here. I mentioned earlier how bird-like Mrs. Gold seems to wear, how Stuart Blaine has claw-like hands and a beard that covers this disfiguring scar on his face, but he still thinks he looks good, which is, I guess, a characteristic of devils. Then there's the carnival with the dog boy, the litho man, the woman and man who have too few limbs, and you know, somehow this is an echoed image in the story of Aphrodite or, or Venus, the statue of that. And so we're left with this sense when Morister's book is describing hell, 
And maybe this just seems like we're always looking for hell in these early wolf stories and books. I mean, he's already referenced Dante. But we can be left with the sense after reading this that Weir is in a kind of hell. But there are also scenes that call to mind the images of heaven that we see in Morister's book that are littered throughout this novel. And we've brought those up in our recap episodes. Um, and there may be these either images of heaven or scenes of heaven that correspond to Morister's vision of heaven here. Um, though I think it would be much harder to identify the presence of anyone described as an angel in the same way we can kind of find correspondences between the descriptions of devils and the way Weir describes people he comes across. So the book is full of these sorts of devils that Wolf describes or Weird describes via Morister. And so I'm left wondering to what degree this is Weir's subjective sense of these people that he's come across or his reflections of them. Uh, and to what degree they are not, you know, to, to we're, we're supposed to be thinking of Weir as being in hell. And as a reader of this text, I feel as though I can rely on these types of stories and texts, like the story of Elijah in, in Andrew Lang's Green Fairy book, as being more objective or more reliable about the real truth of the matter than when we're merely reporting something as happening because they carry the strength of something symbolic that might reveal something Weir doesn't want to reveal. And so we are left, it's our job as readers to decode these stories in order to get some kind of correspondence to the truth of the matter, the real thing that Weir isn't telling us. But with Morister's Marvels of Science, I'm a little skeptical of the way that Weir is revealing things to us to be on the lookout for in the book in terms of an objective reality, in terms of the idea that Weir is in a literal heaven or a literal hell in a cosmological sense. And one reason that I'm skeptical of this is because Weir places this text in the words of a forger. And so there's reason to be skeptical. And yet I have the lingering feeling, as I've pointed out, that the souls that merge when one evil person murders another is somehow a crucial clue to unraveling some mysteries of the text. But I don't think that this text, as it's reported to us, is meant to be taken as pure allegory, as telling us that Weir is in hell. Rather, I think that Weir is recognizing devilish characteristics of others. The belief in Shelley that magic is real or that she's really a psychic. Blaine's actions during the Depression. What Wolf is showing us is that through this text, we are deep in Weir's psychological states, into his unconscious and his feelings about the world in a different way than when He's using symbols to report events and tell stories that he's not fully ready to tell us in a, in a simple and objective sense. So that's my feeling about this text as a legend. Uh, it's Weir's subjectivity, not Wolf telling us that Weir is in hell or Weir is in heaven. Yeah, this, this one, the, the Morister's Marvels of Science, I think of the occult books that we find in Lou Gold's shop, this is the one that's going to matter the most for us in the, the wrap-up episodes. Certainly, you know, all of the 
imagery that you you've talked about is really 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 important even if maybe we might not want to see this as a real uh, direct analog or uh, some kind of allegory in some way for the story that we are reading but uh, we still do have a little bit more of this book to take account of before uh, <laughs> I would feel comfortable making pronouncements there but I'm really really excited to go back and read the first three and a half chapters of this book with this text in mind. Yeah. And and as I said, uh, my belief at this point is that this is subjectivity more than it is objectivity in the way that the story of Aliyah is clearly some symbolic retelling of the story of the suitors that we can kind of take as being more or less objectively true. But Glenn, uh, you, you're going to tell us about uh, the way the Necronomicon is, is functioning in this text. Yeah, and I I don't think the Necronomicon here is functioning in quite the same way that Marvels of Science is. I think that what Wolf is up to here principally actually is just having a bit of fun. You know, the Necronomicon was written by H.P. Lovecraft. It appears in some of his short stories in the early 1920s and then grows in the telling, uh, shows up in much, much bigger ways in his works of the later 1920s and the especially in the 1930s, by which point it is now also showing up in the works of other writers. This was something that Lovecraft did with his his friends, his, his pen pals, who were also weird fiction writers publishing in Weird Tales and other magazines of the time. This is people like Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith, uh, as well as younger people like Robert Block and August Derleth. And of course, this tradition has continued and has continued so strongly that many, many, many people think that the Necronomicon is a real book that H.P. Lovecraft was writing about and not something that he made up. But let me say definitively, he made it up. It is not real. There is no such thing as the Necronomicon. But I have had in my life people with uh, PhDs, really good PhDs and excellent, <laughs> excellent scholars who uh, will say, you know, while getting coffee or, or you know, just in some kind of casual water cooler type conversation, something like, um, I got a question from a student today about the Necronomicon and I realized... I don't know if that's real or not. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not real. But right, that's the whole point I'm trying to make here is that it has become such a ubiquitous part of our culture that you know people who are professional historians on something that is not relevant for the Necronomicon might actually think, that it's a real text that you know they have no reason to know about it because that's not what they research. What they research is 1950s labor history in Latin America, and uh, you know not occult manuscripts from the medieval Mediterranean, for example, right? But still, nonetheless, are unclear on this matter. I myself have been someone who has gone to a library and asked them to track down a copy for me, and so on. <laughs> And I think that that's what Wolf is principally up to here. It's really a joke. He's showing us, you know, uh, the long tradition of making things up and and filling in the gaps. And there are just a lot of jokes, even not naming Lovecraft by name here in the text, but simply referring to him as a providential man, as a kind of uh, double entendre, because of course, Lovecraft was a man who lived in Providence and uh, thought of himself as a providential man in that geographic sense, but even has on his tombstone, I am Providence. And so I think that's principally what Wolf is up to here is having a bit of fun. Nonetheless, the text that we get, which cannot actually be 
uh, an excerpt from what Lou Gold has written uh, because it would immediately be identified as a forgery if this is actually what he has written because it is not written in this, the style of anything from the early medieval Mediterranean. But nonetheless, the story that we get from the Necronomicon, I think, is going to be something we'll have to take uh, account of. We'll have to reckon with at the end of this book because it is about raising a spirit of of the dead and what goes into that. And it is also set in a world that is reminiscent of another story that Wolf has made up here. This is uh, one of the, the earlier stories. This is one of the fairy tale stories that we get in chapter two. This is the one that is meant to feel like it comes from A Thousand and One Nights, even though Wolf himself has, has made it up. And so, yeah, again, I think like you were making parallels back to chapter two with the Marvels of Science. This bit of text from the made-up Necronomicon is asking us to do that as well. And it's going to be fun to take stock of all of this. It really will be. I will say the the sole lingering mystery or question I have of this bit of writing is how the dog star is symbolically linked with... Aunt Olivia throughout the story, throughout this novel, particularly in chapter one, uh, her Indian name is Princess Star Behind Sun, which is Sirius, which is the dog star, which is a joke about her raising the dogs and how that's referenced here in this story. And I have no idea what to do with it. And so maybe uh, one of our one of our astute listeners will have a reading about that, what the symbolic linkage is between this story and Aunt Olivia. We should also point out the third text here, which isn't doesn't we don't get any citations from, which is the cult to ghoul. Uh, I mentioned this earlier because this is where we got that phrase "world turned upside down." We should also mention something curious about this book, which is it appears to be bound in real human skin, <laughs> and the question of where Lewis Gold got this is uh, something that Weir asks when he's playing Sam Spade during the first confrontation. Yeah, I I really, really have to wonder about this. I do not work on medieval manuscripts and never, never have. Uh, I've, I have found it interesting to look at manuscripts, but for the most part, the work that I have done, I've been able to do from printed editions, which are these uh, works of just breathtaking scholarship uh, by just super geniuses of largely the 19th century, but there's some editions from the, the 20th century as well. Just brilliant, amazing scholarly apparatuses and just great scholarly endeavors that that that's what I've been able to do my work from. It's cool to go see manuscripts. One of the things that we can do with manuscripts now thanks to new technologies is cool things even like DNA analysis of the materials of the manuscript. This is super cool. There's a, a really awesome project that uh, is looking to trace the material history of every manuscript of Beowulf by seeing where the animal that went into the the vellum that it's the text is written on where that animal was from and this is something that we've only been able to do in the last uh, 20 years we couldn't have done this at, at any point in the 20th century would we would not have had the technology to to do this and that is super cool but that is not something that can happen here in the 1950s <laughs> on on this manuscript so i wonder if it actually is bound in human skin uh, now this is certainly something that uh is in the weird fiction tradition of the cult of ghouls we talked about its provenance from robert block it's used by lovecraft and others in the recap episode that's part of the deal it's bound in human skin lou gold says that it is but you know 
Is it? I mean, I think not. And who could who could really tell, right? I think that Lou Gold is very clever. So he has found something that he thinks he can pass off as human skin. And even if it's discovered not to be, right? I mean, it just I you know, I just found this book in Paris. I didn't make it. So like, you know, it's it's that's not on me. But yeah, no one can do any DNA analysis to see that this is actually, you know, the skin of a, a sheep or a pig or a deer or some something else. Uh, though I do wonder what he actually got. Well, before we leave the uh, occult books behind, Brandon, let me just remind listeners that we are doing actually some bonus episodes on some of these pieces, uh, and those are all going to show up on on Patreon. H.P. Lovecraft actually wrote a history of the Necronomicon. It's basically a manuscript uh, tradition history here, which is very cool. Uh, Jay Deal, who is a medieval historian who works on like monastic libraries and reading practices of medieval monks and is a manuscript guy. Uh, he and I have already published an episode on the history of Necronomicon over on Patreon. And then in 2023, we're going to be reading these stories by H.P. Lovecraft and Robert Block that uh, deal with some of these texts and uh, looking forward to doing that. And if uh, that's something that interests you and you are not already with us on Patreon, now's a great time to to check us out there. You really should be checking us out on Patreon. We have so many good episodes and bonus content on there. It's kind of astonishing. I mean, I think we've done some great stuff over there on Patreon. But the final question we have to ask here before we move on to uh, some some of the uh, extraneous stuff in this chapter is, why are the golds so important to Weir? Why is this chapter, which is so emblematic of Weir's middle age, focused on the golds? Yeah. I mean, the title, of course, is a double entendre. It does refer to the gold family, but also refers to the the buried treasure, the gold that they are looking for. But, you know, in terms of thinking about why are the golds important to, to Weir such that they, they occupy so much space in this autobiography or, or memoir, I guess really this is, I mean, Weir's story is a story of being left behind by women. His mother actually literally abandons him when he's a kid to just go to another country and and be a tourist to be on vacation for years. Uh, Olivia, who then is his surrogate mother for many years, dies when he is still young. And uh, we talked in the previous episode about how this has affected Weir's romantic and and uh, emotional and I think just sexual development as well, right? This is something that really has shaped him. He then loses Margaret Lorne. He loses Lois. And you know we've been speculating, right, that in some sense he loses Sherry as well. Weir even thinks of his own childhood home as his grandmother's house, even though we never actually meet his grandmother in any of these stories. He never really tells us very much about her. Nonetheless, the house is strongly identified with her. Hannah Mill, right, his childhood cook, she even seems important in this way as well. And Weir then also even thinks a lot about his female secretaries. And it seems like Weir's entire life is a quest for a woman who will love him and also stick around. And I think even the organization of the chapters has been about this, right? Certainly, uh, chapter two is centrally about Olivia and Margaret Lorne uh, and how the, the two stories then are connected. And I think chapter four does the same thing with Lois and Sherry. And so that's where, you know, gold refers to both of them. It's Sherry gold, and then Lois joins him on the the hunt for this buried goal. 
I have nothing to add to that, except that this was probably the most exciting year in his life in middle age. <laughs> Otherwise, he was just kind of living in a crummy apartment, uh, watching uh, Ted Singer and Melissa have sex and just being generally weird, uh, haunting the town, going to work and not liking to be bothered by anybody, eating at the same restaurant owned by the chef uh, whose food he grew up eating. So just kind of not really maturing, being stuck in some kind of arrested development. And, and you really get the sense that this confrontation with gold are the first two things that he's done where he really had to genuinely confront another person about something that affected him, uh, where he had to take some kind of stand, even though he ends up doing nothing and acting really wrongly with uh, Sherry Gold. But yeah, this seems like the event of his middle age before he enters a later period of his life where he's wealthy and a whole new thing starts up for him. Yeah, I mean, I I hope that at some point in the next few years, Brandon, you you come to me with a a, a book that you found randomly at some shop in Chicago with a, a plan to for us to go find some buried treasure or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, no guns. We can't bring any guns on the trip. But uh, yeah, I mean, that would be exciting and for sure. This yeah, it out. would be as long as uh, we're using a full sized axe and shovel. And uh, I will say this, Glenn, I. I'm willing to I'm willing to budge on the shovel business a little bit, but not the pickaxe business. I know there can be garden spades that are just shovels with flat ends in, instead of triangle ends. Boy, am I bad at terms. But <laughs> <laughs> but the the language is so specific there, and it's a mini axe. I don't know. I'm willing to. I'm willing to hear arguments from other readers at this point. <laughs> well, I think this is something we will actually want to revisit in the wrap-up episode for sure. I have thoughts on this too. We have actually just been planting our garden out in the backyard with uh, with with Finch, and I have uh, been interested actually in the way that he's learning the vocabulary of garden tools. So, uh, but we'll we'll revisit this <laughs> in a, a future whole episode. Twenty minutes in our final wrap-up episode on yeah, the yeah. way Wolf is describing garden tools and digging tools. <laughs> uh, and by twenty, you mean at least 45. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Well, let's <laughs> let's uh, kind of round third here on our way to finishing up our discussion of this chapter. And this is with the out of place stuff and other miscellany. There are two events in this chapter that while I was reading them felt a little loose to me on a narrative level. Like I, I couldn't quite see how they were supposed to fit into so many of the other things that Wolf has been doing with and preoccupied with in this novel. The first one is the solo side quest that Weir takes to the housing development. Uh, I have two questions about this. Uh, why did he stop here? I mean, I guess he thought Blaine's old house was here, but why did he stay instead of just driving through it and realized he made a mistake? And I guess I re- that's really my only question. <laughs> I don't really have two questions. I have some thoughts about this question. Why is this in the text and why is Weir highlighting this? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that strikes us as weird is that Weir gets out of the car, rings the doorbell and says, hey, there used to be another house here. Do you know what happened to the dude who lived in it? We're just, that's not the way any of us would go about finding that information now. And and boy, I would, I mean, do we even answer our doors? Someone rings the doorbell. I just immediately just close all the curtains and pretend we're not home. I think is that, and then my understanding is that's what everybody does right now. So it's just an artifact. I mean, in some sense, just an artifact from a world that makes zero sense to us these days. But I do think that 
narratively, like what Wolf is up to here, there is something perhaps important here that goes back to uh, this detail that we get much, much earlier, which is that when Weir comes into money and he's making his own home to live in, that he models some of it on Stuart Blaine's old mansion. I think that one of the things that we can maybe get from this, from this discovery here that the the mansion is is gone, is that that is a change actually that really bothers Weir. And so that there's some sense in which Weir is using his mansion not only to create all of these weird rooms that he's taking from his own memories, you know, recreating important rooms that, that that have mattered to him in his life, but that he also actually feels even like Stuart Blaine's mansion should still exist in the world. It's some kind of a front that it doesn't exist anymore. And so he's going to recreate it in some way. And it's totally possible that the whole shape of the house actually is of Stuart Blaine's mansion. But but that's all I've really got. Yeah, I'm not sure if this house has an exterior shape at all. <laughs> and that's something we right. can uh, discuss <laughs> another time. This episode really stuck out to me because in a chapter where Weir is demonstrating intimate knowledge of the geography of Cashinsville, uh, in, in a chapter where the principle of change is brought up so many times. Weir missed this somehow, that he's never gone this direction again in Cashinsville, that these houses have been here for eight years and he doesn't know what happened. And and we talked a little bit about Weir maybe leaving Cashinsville for a period of time. But it's so strange to me, the contrast here of demonstrating this knowledge of the land, of Hannah Mills Old Farm and Sugar Creek and uh, all this. He goes through this whole thing with Lewis Gold about knowing the geography of the town. He seems to have missed this period where some suburbs were built. And it's just very strange to me, uh, this episode of Lost Time. And that's what it highlights to me. Well, not not even suburbs. I mean, this is the heart of town. This is the oldest part of Cashinsville, actually. And so, I mean, we are definitely did leave Cashinsville. He left for college, though presumably was back uh, for holidays, you know, in in some way. So it wasn't permanently gone for, you know, four years or or six years, maybe if he was doing some uh, kind of graduate education as well. Uh, and we and we know that he had his job at the the factory lined up before he finished college. And also that uh, this is the only job that he's ever had. These are details that we get in this story. So yeah, it does strike us as strange that this is something that happened when he was in his mid to late 30s, Is actually been back in Cashinsville for a decade at that point, working at the, the factory, and just doesn't know that this has happened. But I think it makes me just want to see a map of Cashinsville and figure out, you know, where does where is the factory, which I think we don't even really have to know very much about it to understand that it's going to be on the outskirts of town. That's where you're going to build something like this. And then wondering where Weir is living. He seems to be living in some apartments that are kind of new. And so he might actually be living more on the outskirts of town, where of course all of his family life was in the heart of town, not actually that far from Stuart Blaine's mansion. But then now he has moved to the outskirts of town in a newer apartment building uh, and and has his job there. He does tell us that he doesn't make it to Lewis Gold's shop, which is also in downtown Cashinsville. He doesn't make it there very often. Uh, you joked earlier, Brandon, about how, you know, he's just eating at, uh, you know, the, the restaurant all of the, all of the time. But I wonder how frequently he actually really is going there. It might really just be the case that he 
usually is just going between his apartment and the the factory and then occasionally going to the bookshop and that that's about it. And so it's maybe kind of an indication of his lack of social life, if anything else. I'll accept that. Uh, I think there's something weird going on there, but... Uh, well, I, I'll t- I agree. I'll take your I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's too pointed to not be uh, strange, you know, especially in the contrast. The, the other thing that feels really out of place to me on a narrative level in this chapter is Aunt Arabella's ghost story and a revisiting and revision of that Christmas time that Weir spent with his grandfather and mother in uh, Tennessee, I guess that was. So, yeah, what was your sense of what's going on with this bit of uh, narrative intrusion? I'm not sure that I've got a good answer for what is going on with it, like what what purpose it is serving here in the chapter or, or serving here in the, the novel, other than that this chapter is replete with excerpts from weird fiction stories written by different people, but purporting to be real. Uh, So, you know, one thing to just be clear about is that uh, Aunt Arabella is not a journalist. She did not go to a hotel to be a part of their Ghost Chaser series. This is not journalism. This is a work of fiction that's masquerading as journalism. It's a hoax. In the same way that everything Lou Gold is writing is a is a hoax, right? And so, you know, that's a that's a parallel that we get within the chapter. And this is a classic bit of weird fiction, just like what Gold has written for Morister's Marvels of Science or Lovecraft's Necronomicon, or well, I guess not Lovecraft's Necronomicon, Alhazred's Necronomicon, I guess is as he's as he's trying to have it here. And so we just have a a, a work of weird fiction, a work of contemporary weird fiction that is being passed off as a forgery. You know, why we needed another example of that, I don't know, but I'm glad we got it. I think it's an amazing story. We have we have a, a chapter here that's kind of obsessed with ghosts and the dead speaking, not only Aunt Arabella's ghost story. Uh, we know she founded the Spiritualist Society of Cashinsville. We learned that in, in chapter one. Um, we have now her telling this ghost story, her interested in the spiritual world and the occult. Uh, the, ghost story, the ghost story is a bit of fun. We have Margaret Lauren talking about the bell witch. We have the dead speaking at the end of the novel. We have these references to, to ghosts here. So I will say that part of what is going on here is this emphasis on ghosts and ghost stories, and and not only how they're a part of Americana, but how they're really layered into the story that Weir himself is telling here. But we should talk about also the final bit of stuff we get in this story that's not really connected to anything else. And that's all this business with Bill Bratton at the business meeting. With him, we get the introduction of the hairy man that we are going to have dinner with, as well as the idea that Mrs. Porter plants trees on the on the graves of her friends. So did anything else jump out to you about these these Bill Bratton sections? Right, we we are not reading ahead here as we're as we're doing episodes, but uh, you know, as you close the page on chapter four, it's impossible not to see what the title of chapter five is, <laughs> and so you know, we know that the next episode, the next period of Weir's life that we are going to get, uh, is almost certainly when he is actually the president of the company, because chapter five is entitled the president, and so all throughout the book, we've been getting these little snippets of scenes 
in his office or around the the factory and and this this Bill Batten stuff is a part of that some of this business with his secretaries as well and so I have to think that that's going to come to some kind of culmination in in chapter five, though we've been saying that about a lot of things. And chapter five does not seem like it is enough pages to do all of that. So I'm going to be real <laughs> interested to see what actually is is getting wrapped up in, in chapter five, how Wolf deals with all of yeah, this Yeah, I'm material. very, very nervous about all of that. Uh, in, in fact, I'm, I'm really unsure if uh, we are going to get any of these lingering mysteries wrapped up. And so I'm really excited to get into chapter five. Uh, but yeah, I, I think these Bill Bratton sections are setting us up for Weir's time as the president of uh, the company. There are just two more things I think we should really point out here as we as we close out the episode. Some miscellaneous things that we've brought up throughout the recaps uh, that we should really highlight here in our wrap up episode for Chapter Four. Uh, and this one of them is all these examples of time slippage where Weir is seemingly in conversation or doing something in the past, and it is happening also in the present. So there's in his present as he's writing. So there's the example of him giving Lois the wrong phone number because he's thinking of the wrong time, uh, the wrong type of phone number based on the time when he's writing. There's also the example of him at Christmas when he is writing everything down and Aunt Arabella uh, comments on that. And then he says, and so I am. And so these examples where time is really flowing together. And so we have to wonder if this is a technique that Weir is using as he's writing this manuscript, which he says he's doing, or if it's an example of something else entirely. And so, Glenn, this is a question to you. What did you make of all these examples of time slippage? Yeah, I mean, this is the question, right? Is he actually, uh, you know, is is there something timey-wimey happening here? Or is this simply, we're very rich, very vivid uh, memory. It's it's kind of fantasy life here. I mean, that's, that's the question. I... I'm going to reserve having any definitive answer until we have read every word of the text, <laughs> the, you know, the complete novel several times. But I will say that something that I want to put into this category actually is Aunt Arabella's ghost story. Because I think having read that a few times now, and I, I was actually trying to give it the elder sign treatment where, you know, what would we say about this story if we read it on its own? And you know, if, especially if I were doing the discussion for that story, questions that I would have had would have been about, you know, trying to get at the metaphysics of the ghost stuff here, like trying to figure out physically or metaphysically what actually happened to the writer of that story. And I think that I've come down on the side of something timey-wimey actually happening in that story, which is very focused on electricity uh, versus uh, candlelight and uh, also electricity as as powering uh, music playing devices gramophones in particular uh, but lights as well and that what happens in that story essentially is that uh, Aunt Arabella has a an experience of this hotel in I think we decided to just assume it was Philadelphia right <laughs> in right. this hotel in Philly where She's experiencing these sights and sounds of nightlife in Philly from, say, later in the 20th century, when cars, vehicle traffic late at night is a thing, and music players in hotel rooms are a thing, and they don't turn the electricity off at 11 o'clock at night or 10 p.m. at, at night, that people have their lights on all night. And so that's why she's seeing 
lights coming uh, from you know the the bottom of the the doors, the cracks of the doors, is hearing music behind the the doors of the other hotel rooms, and then also is experiencing all this crazy noise coming from outside that she describes as as sounding like a, a battlefield. When really all that's happening, I think, is that hotel guests are being loud at eleven o'clock at night in ways that they can because there's electricity and other technological developments. And then also there's just a lot of cabs outside at at night uh, looking to take people home uh, from central Philadelphia as they're getting out of the, you know, the symphony or the theater or whatever it is they've been doing in their, their weekend nightlife. Conversely, we get this phone call uh, from the hotel room, Aunt Arabella's hotel room down to the person at the, the desk. And this is not Aunt Arabella. That's the shocking revelation that the story ends on. It's someone else calling from that room to complain about floating lights in the room that must be the lights of Arabella's candle as she's walking around <laughs> the room, right? I think that that's my sense of what happened is that there's some kind of, not maybe time travel, though maybe some kind of time travel, but some kind of, of blending of two different time periods. And so um, I was a little cagey, you know, in answering your question about what's the point of this story showing up in the chapter, because I wanted to save it to uh, juxtapose with these other incidents of, of time slippage here on the, on the outline, because I think that this might be some bit of evidence that Wolf is giving us here to think about in terms of uh, trying to understand, is this a world in which astral projecting yourself through time is possible. Uh, And it may be that we're supposed to think, yes, it is. I think that's such a great explanation of both Aunt Arabella's, the presence of Aunt Arabella's story here, but also what's going on with the time. I think from my perspective, the overlaying of two times makes a lot of sense into what's going on. The text is so clear on so many occasions that Weir is writing this down, but he seems to also have a, a, such a close perspective or proximity to the events themselves happening. He's writing them down almost as a witness or observer in some point that the overlaying of two times is such a great uh, explanation for, for these events. And then add on top of that, Weir's own distorted psychology and, and sense of self or what's going on around him. And uh, I guess you've got the novel piece. And that's what I want to talk about next. The final piece of miscellany here uh, is the title of the novel is mentioned in this chapter. And this is the only time we get the word peace in this novel. It's mentioned in this Amanda Ross pastiche. We read it in the recap episode, but it's a bit of absurd writing. And I'm going to read the text again here. It's found on page 231 of the Orb 2012 edition. Here's what it is. Peace pressed the plantation of perfumed pines, as a prince in a parable might pamper a princess. The pines' pliant pinnacles poked the purple empyrean, as the princess's pale palms might pat a precious pet. Lady Luella, said Lelowin Lightfoot, then lapsed into a limpid silence. Let's. Lady Luella softly lisped. What's that about? <laughs> Glenn, why put the uh, title of the novel into that bit of writing? Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's difficult even to parse the syntax of this sentence because, you know, the, it's everything in here is a servant to the alliteration. <laughs> but yeah, the idea of peace, kind of pressing 
down on on a place is is what's happening here in this clause and then the place is described in terms of pine trees and and how they how they smell and what they feel like and these are images that we've had we've had descriptions of of pine trees earlier in in the book describing Cashinsville and then also this business with the prince in a parable and the princess well we've had parables in this story we've had princes we've had princesses and you know, going back to thinking about Weir's uh, love life and the extent to which his life has really been one long quest for a, a woman, some kind of female companionship. I think Weir might think of himself as a, a prince in, in search of a princess in some way. So yeah, I, th- I think there's some value in this sentence here, some meaning, some significance in this sentence. Uh, we do have one chapter left to go, but I think that we're going to want to revisit this. Right. And, and we should also point out here, you know, the, the princess business, we have Lady Luella, uh, um, and then Llewellyn is the, the lusty lawyer, as far as we know, who's just a professional man, uh, more than he is somebody of a certain class, at least as far as we can tell. And that probably is, makes up some of the tension of the novel. Uh, but that is also perhaps the way Weir thinks of himself. He's a he's an engineer, um, and the people he's in love with, you know, he equates to princesses, both Margaret Lauren and Aunt Olivia. And so I think that that also plays into it as well. Though I'm still not sure what peace means in this context. <laughs> uh, maybe some kind of settling or rest around finding the, the love uh, in these moments. But Glenn, we've done it. That is our discussion episode wrap up for chapter four. That is going to do it for chapter four then. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We're going to be back on November 22nd with the first recap episode for chapter five. And in the meantime, of course, we hope you will check out our other shows if you aren't already listening to them. And we also hope you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. Uh, we've got scores of bonus episodes over on Patreon, including our bonus series on At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, two that we're doing right now that are ongoing on Swamp Thing and also the Star Trek the next generation films and then also of course the episodes we mentioned on these uh weird fiction stories that uh, wolf brings up in this chapter just loads and loads of stuff there we hope you'll check it out but until next time we greet you and say farewell <laughs>